one of the, or I would say the only, disadvantage of having a large pulpit such as this is I had no idea who was singing that angelic voice that was bringing us into the glory of the Savior. Thank you for sharing that song with us. There was a survey done not too terribly long ago, I suppose, by Timex, the watchmaker. And out of this survey, they said that Americans, on average, wait 32 minutes when they visit a doctor. 28 minutes waiting in security lines whenever they travel. Americans wait 21 minutes for a significant other to get ready to go out. All of them are men. (laughs) Most Americans, they said, spend 13 hours annually waiting on hold for customer service. Average American commuter spends 38 hours each year waiting in traffic. Big city commuters average more than 50 hours annually waiting in traffic. Americans annually spend 37 billion hours waiting in line. Waiting. We're always waiting on something. See this picture that came out over the Thanksgiving holiday? That's Highway 405 in California, Thanksgiving Day. Waiting and waiting and waiting. Waiting in traffic, waiting in the grocery store line, waiting in the doctor's office, waiting at the bank. We spend our lives, it seems like, waiting. In our passage today out of Luke chapter 19, Jesus has a lot to say to us about what we should be doing while we are waiting. Specifically, while we are waiting for His return. See, this season of the year, we celebrate Jesus coming to earth to take our sin upon Himself that He might die in our place so that when we trust Him, when we have faith in Him, we might be saved, we might be forgiven, we might have life eternal. But part of the promise of Jesus coming the first time is that He is going to come again for His people and so we will be with Him forever. And the parable that Jesus tells here in Luke chapter 19 this morning gives us a great insight into how we are to behave, what we are to do while we're waiting. So let's look at Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, Having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. 
The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I had kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Merry Christmas. Wow, what a passage of Scripture, right? What in the world does all of this mean as we look at this? See, lots of times this, this parable has been used in order to impress upon you how you should give. You, you should give a lot. You should go out and invest so that you have more to give to the Lord. I don't think that that's what the parable is at all about. So we're not talking this morning about stewardship of your financial resources. You can breathe easy this morning knowing that. We're not talking about your money today. We're talking about something much, much deeper than that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divide things uh, around this morning, three specific words that we will look at together. The first is the word expectation. The second is the word devotion. And the third is the word proportion. And so let's begin by, by talking about the expectation that Jesus leaves for us as to what we can expect in the time between his first coming that we celebrate here at Christmas and his eventual return, forward to which we look even this very day. There's an expectation that Jesus talks about. And in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is telling his followers, He's telling us what we should expect in order that we might know how to live our lives. Because you see, what's happening here is Jesus' disciples, as they're following him, they had already an expectation and anticipation about the kingdom of God being set up. So let's, let's go back to first century Israel and let's imagine what's happening here. You have the nation of Israel. They are known as the people of God, God's chosen people. They have a, a little strip of land there in what we know as the Middle East, and yet they are not their own nation. There is a foreign power that has overtaken them. They're living in subjection to the Roman Empire, and they despise it. They hate it. 
and they look back at the Old Testament, their scriptures, and they read that God is going to send a Redeemer that God is going to send the Messiah, that he's going to send a Savior. And so they are looking forward to when this Savior shows up so that they're no longer under Roman oppression and Roman rule and bondage. And the disciples of Jesus had this very same expectation. They're thinking, in fact, that this is the very thing that's going to happen when Jesus finally gets to Jerusalem. And Lord willing, we'll look at that next week in his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. And they have this expectation that Jesus is going to go into Israel, there's going to be a revolution, the Romans are going to be thrown out, and God's Savior will deliver them out of bondage to Rome. It's, it's really telling that, that they continue to have this, this notion. As much as Jesus had been speaking about his certain suffering and death that is to come, they're just not getting it. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus again sharing with them, I'm going to get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and they still weren't getting it. I think, though, we need to not give them too much of a hard time. Because it seems to me that we oftentimes have a tendency to do just the same thing. We know what God says in His Word. We know what God says to us, but we just don't get it. And more often than not, we don't get it because we really don't want to get it. We would prefer to do it our way with our own set of expectations instead of living in submission to what God says about how we should live our lives. But Jesus is making it clear to them that it's not going to happen the way that they think it is going to happen. And it's vital for Jesus' disciples to have the right expectation about what is going to happen so that they have the right expectation about what they need to be doing in light of what's going to happen. And what does Jesus tell them to expect? He tells them here, look again at verse 12, or excuse me, verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Hmm. Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't expect that in my going to Jerusalem, it's going to be a wonderful experience. Don't think I'm going to be embraced as the king of Israel. And of course, we know that's exactly what happens. In, in just a week's time, this crowd of people, when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, is going to be shouting after they had shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One week after that, what are they shouting? Crucify him crucify him, put him to death. And think about this. We're at the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry, right before his crucifixion. And he's got about 500 followers with him. The rest of Israel rejected him. Wanted nothing to do with him. Here is Jesus who has three close friends larger circle of 12 disciples, and even one of those is going to betray him, and then eventually all of the others are going to desert him. 
He's going to be left by himself at his moment of greatest despair. And there's a larger group of about 70 disciples with Jesus in the upper room. Total together about 500 people following him. These were the people who were shouting Hosanna when he comes into Jerusalem, but the larger crowd wasn't shouting that. They were shouting out to crucifying. And Jesus is saying, listen, when we get to Jerusalem, don't expect to be leading a victory parade. Not yet. Not this time. That's the whole point of this parable that Jesus tells. He's trying to get his disciples prepared because, verse 11, they suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And so he says, here's what it's like. This is your expectation that the kingdom of God is going to appear immediately. But instead, let me tell you what it will be like. He said, there's a nobleman of God, excuse me, a nobleman that went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. He's going out to a far country. In other words, this is going to take some time. This king, this nobleman comes into this country, he's going to a far country, and he will come back one day. This, this is not a hundred yard dash. This is a marathon, Jesus is saying. And he's setting our expectations for us, and this changes everything. Jesus is saying, let me tell you what it's going to be like when you follow me. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be a fight. It's going to consist of rejection because this world that rejected Jesus is going to reject his followers as well. When you live for Jesus, when you follow Jesus, don't expect this world that is antithetical to the things of God is going to embrace you. It's not going to happen. In one of the saddest verses that, that I read in all of Scripture, it comes Paul writing to Timothy, his, his beloved son in the ministry. And Paul is writing to Timothy. It's nearing the end of his life, and he's saying, Timothy, I, I have fought the fight. I fought the good fight. I can see the finish line ahead of me now. And listen to what he says to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Isn't that sad? To be rejected, to be deserted, to be abandoned, simply because you say to people, God's love for you is so great that he wants you to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus and find life. Jesus says we're, we're not going to lead a victory parade when we get into Jerusalem. Not yet. The victory parade will come, but it's not now. And so there's the expectation that Jesus has to deal with for the disciples. And then he gets to the issue of devotion. Look, look at verse 13. We see it beginning to flow out. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. 
As I said, lots of times this parable is used uh, and people just lock in on this issue here of rewards. And so what happens is you get to this and the emphasis is put on if you will do X, then Y is going to happen. So it's kind of like a notion that we have of other people in our relationship to them. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And we think if we scratch God's back, that he'll scratch ours and he'll do for us, he'll give to us. You do good, you do really good, and you get a lot more. You do not quite so good, but still good, and you get some more. You don't do good and you don't get blessings. Even if you do get to go into heaven... It's all about your doing. But don't get blinded by the details of this parable. That's not what Jesus is saying here. The big picture here is very, very clear. Jesus is speaking about these servants being given a task. The emphasis is on the task that they were given. They were to engage in business until their master returns. And the picture here of rewarding these servants is all designed to point out one thing, and that is their devotion to their king. These servants are supposed to be about doing the king's business. They're not to live for themselves. They're to live for the king and his kingdom. Because, see, this is the king's money. Understand that? This all belongs to the king and they're told to invest it, they're told to take care of it, but it's not theirs. It belongs to him. And so they are to be about the king's business. Let me ask you, when we look at King Jesus, when we look at the ruler of our lives, what is the business that he has for us? Is, is it to make money? Is it to be influential? Is it to be affluent? No. Jesus makes it abundantly clear what his business is. At the end of Matthew's gospel, go therefore and make disciples. Go and make disciples. That's the business of our king and his kingdom. That's what this is all about. They're to be about the king's business. What they do is for the king's benefit and it's for the king's agenda, not their own. And, and this, this, is not, this is not even a parable about giving. Just think about this. What is it that we have been given? I know, we've been given everything that we have from God. But specifically, what is it that makes that a reality is that we have been given the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are to steward it effectively because that is the king's business to share the gospel and make disciples of that. And so this is a message that is about the, the, the whole, whole aspect of your life, the totality of your life. It's about what you are living for in your life. Have you ever before taken stock of your life? I mean, just to ask yourself the questions, what, what am I living for? Really, what am I living for? What do I really care about? What is my life about? Maybe even to put it all down. Maybe if you were forced to put it down on one piece of paper, what would the sum of my life be about? What's the legacy that I'm leaving? What do I think my satisfaction is going to come from? 
Maybe it's time that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, were to say to ourselves, I'm a servant to a different king than so many of the people around me are servant to. And does our service to King Jesus really show in our lives? And this is Jesus' clarion call to us all. He is saying, you're not to live your life for yourself, but for God and his kingdom. That's where your reward comes from. Happiness, satisfaction, purpose in life, rightness with God, peace with God. Jesus is telling us a story about devotion here. He's saying, you need to be about my business. What is my business making disciples? We celebrate this time of the year that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came that you might have a different king. He came that your life might have purpose in bringing glory to God. Expectation of what is going to happen. Devotion to Jesus in the meantime. And then finally, this word proportion. Look look at it in verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. First came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten, mine is more. Now, a a mina is, um, it's not an insignificant amount of money, but it's not going to make you drastically wealthy as well. It, it would be about three months' wages for a regular day laborer in that time. So it, it is significant, three months of pay, but it's not, it's not executive pay. It's, it's, uh, it's just a day laborer pay. It wouldn't be enough for you to move to the Caribbean and retire on the interest that you make. And this one guy comes back and he says, well... This, this mina, this three-month salary uh, that you gave me has, has turned into 10. It's now 30 months, two and a half years, almost three years salary. I guess if we were to look at it in today's wages, it would probably be a little bit less than $100,000 probably in today's wages. What was the reward he was given? You get 10 cities. Jesus said in verse 17. Verse 18, the next guy comes in. He says, Lord, your mina has made five minas, about a year and a half salary, somewhere around $50,000 approximately. What is his reward? He gets five cities. What? I I, I made about $100,000 and you're giving me 10 cities? Seriously? This is huge. This is incredible. When we talk about proportion, really probably what I should talk about is disproportion within all of this. You've been given this much back and you're going to put me in charge and give to me 10 cities? That's magnificent. Who's ever heard of such a thing? But you know what happens with people who get cities that belong to the king? Don't you know they have a really close relationship with the king? Don't you know they really are involved in his life? They're talking with the king. They're conversing with the king. They know the king. 
This reward that he gives is completely disproportionate to the, to the business and stewardship of what was given to each servant. This is the generosity of God before us. Just think about that at this Christmas. The amazing generosity of God for a world of wretched sinners. God gave his son Jesus. What generosity we have in God and how he deals with people, how generous, how loving, how gracious, and he rewards entirely disproportionately to the labor and the results. His rewards are, are entirely out of his grace and out of his generosity, and that's entirely the point of what Jesus is saying. The rewards are greater than anything you could ever imagine when it comes to serving God. And you see it especially when we come to this third servant. We already know that he's a wicked man. His, his heart's not right. Jesus points that out for us in verse 22. I'll condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. And in the parable, this, this king responds in the most ironic of ways to this servant. Back and look at it again, verse 20. Another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And then the king responds to this servant. The, the king is not accepting the reality that he's a severe man. He's not. You see his generosity already. You see his, his gracious giving already with the other two servants. He's, he's, he's not severe in his generosity. This, this whole idea is just blown out of the water when we see the generosity of the king. But what he is saying here, look, look at what he says. He says to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, he questions, you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. In other words, he's saying, you, you really think this is who I am? You say this is what I'm like? Really? I'm a severe man? Really? Okay, fine. Let's play by your rules then. If I'm such a severe man and, and I'm working for me, if I know I'm working for this severe man, I'm at least putting that money in the bank to draw some interest. I'm not burying it in a handkerchief somewhere. The servant acted totally irresponsibly. And everyone listening to Jesus tell the story would have known exactly what this servant had done and how irresponsible he was. But the worst part of all of it, who does he blame for his irresponsibility? He blames the king. You're severe. I'm afraid of you. Slanderous. Jesus is wanting all of us to understand to be able to say what the first century hears, this servant is ridiculous. God is disproportionately generous in the way that he rewards. And he is not hard and severe, because if he were, we would all be in a mess of trouble. Hear what Jesus is saying through this. Going back to the expectation and the devotion 
Jesus is saying, you, you may go through this life and you may experience rejection and disappointment and betrayal on my account, but there is a reward that you cannot even comprehend and it's coming for you and that reward makes all the difference in how you live your life now. Jesus is saying to the disciples and he is saying to us, do not be so turned in on yourself. The Lord's going to take care of his people. Instead of focusing on how you've been disappointed, serve him in your life. That's, that's why, friends, that's why we have to live our lives right now in light of forever. We have to live our lives right now in light of forever. And I wonder, do you really believe how disproportionately generous God is? See, it seems like we have such a hard time believing this, and I think the reason we have a hard time believing this is because the only realm in which we center, see generosity is in the realm of this world. And so our definition of generosity is dependent upon us and, and, and I, I want it now. I want the money now. I want the resources now. I want this now. And God is disproportionately generous to his people. And especially we see this when the king returns. He, he's, he, he's been in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father for a couple thousand years now. But one day he's going to come back for his people. And what is he going to find in our lives when it comes to what we were devoted to? I mean, think biblically about this. Where does your devotion lie? I mean, seriously. Can, can, we, all just, can we all just for a moment just stop? And really step back to evaluate our lives and say, where does my devotion lie? What is it that I'm devoted to? Because, yes, one day Jesus will return. And to those who have invested his gospel, there will be unimaginable rewards. To those who have hidden his gospel there's going to be shame and to those who reject his gospel there will be death that's why he says in verse 27 this most sobering of statements but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them. Bring them here and slaughter them before me. Our modern sensibilities tell us to shrink away from this. Tell us, Pastor, stop at verse 26. Let's not look at verse 27.
but I would be doing you the greatest disservice in the world if I did not bear upon your attention this morning the very serious reality that one day King Jesus is coming back. He will reward his servants those who reject him and do not want him eternal death awaits them and it terrifies me it terrifies me at the thought that someone in this room right now having rejected Christ is on your way to this destiny. And I want nothing more than for you to discover the amazing generosity of our King. To come to faith in Him. Trusting Him for salvation and forgiveness. To repent of those sins that weigh upon you to find freedom, forgiveness, and liberation in Christ. My prayer for you who do not know Jesus is that this would be the day you confess faith in Christ. My prayer for us who are Christians is that we would faithfully steward the gospel of Jesus Christ. wherein we, refine, we find the rewards from God one day when Jesus returns to be entirely more than sufficient and overly generous. Father, this morning we, we stand very much on what feels like holy ground. as the gospel has been given, that Jesus Christ came to earth to save sinners. And that by His death we have life. By His resurrection we have hope. Father, I pray today that every person in this room would have that hope in Jesus. But understanding that that very well may not be reality, I pray, Father, please, would you speak to broken hearts? Would you speak to souls that are weighed down under their own guilt and sin? And would you allow those hearts to hear the words of Jesus as he quotes from Isaiah that he has come to proclaim freedom to those in captivity to sin. And Father, would you strengthen us, your people, to steward the gospel well. 
in making disciples for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning, and as we sing together, we give you an opportunity to respond. If, if you would like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Christ, forgiven of sin, we would love to begin that conversation with you. I'm going to be standing here, and if you want to come and meet me here now, I'll be glad to hear you. We'll begin praying together and start talking more about what that means, maybe about what it means to be a member at Boone Trail Baptist Church. We would love to start that conversation. If you want to begin it right now, you're welcome to come. If you want to begin it later, you holler at me. We'll talk whenever you can. But if you need to come, you come this morning.